This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. When I interviewed Stefan Sackmeister on Design Matters back in 2005, he recalled his experience of moving to Hong Kong and how, before arriving there, he wondered what his life was going to be like. On the flight over, he told himself that the first thing he saw upon arriving would give him a sign as to how his new venture would turn out. As his flight came in for its final descent, he saw a billboard advertising a brand named Winners. And in that telegraphic instant, he predicted his foray into this unknown territory would be a positive one. And it was. I couldn't help but nod in agreement as Stefan described his deal he made with himself via the visual indications surrounding him. I, too, depend on what I consider objective signals from impartial sources to forecast or forewarn how a particular situation or encounter might unfold. And I consider all forms of communication fair game. Bumper stickers, newspaper headlines, T-shirts, snippets of eavesdropped, conversations, fortune cookies, newspaper headlines, again, errant flyers, songs on the radio, more newspaper headlines. These are all potential messages specifically targeted to foretell the future in front of me. I think most people participate in some sort of similar behavior. In fact, I suspect we engage in a raft of puzzling rituals far more than we even realize. Who among us hasn't crossed their fingers, or knocked on wood, or avoided walking under a ladder, or tossed salt over their shoulder with the hope that somehow these corny compulsions would protect us from doom or despair? These superstitions ultimately signal an utter disregard of reason. The superstitious person is under the false assumption of a divine or a paranormal influence or form of control over the universe, as if that were really possible. But superstitions work, work both ways. For all of the little rituals one might engage in to ward off evil, there is as many that instill a belief that nothing will ever change and that all the luck we are levied will just continue flooding in forever. As a result, the athlete on a winning streak might not change his socks or shave, and a gambler might need to sit in a certain chair in order not to break their spell of good fortune. Why do we do this? What is the reason we instill so much power in these signs, these rituals, these amulets of supposed power or protection? In the case of athletes, sports doctor Richard Lusberg states that superstitions create a confidence inside a player or a coach. Athletes begin to believe, and want to believe, that their particular routine is enhancing their performance. Wanting more control or certainty is the driving force behind most superstitions. Freud called these superstitions faulty actions. Modern psychologists call this magical thinking. I certainly prefer that. 
Some consider superstitions expressions of inner tensions and, and anxieties, and still others believe superstitions are signs of a mental disorder. Mental disorders notwithstanding, lately I've had a hard time not feeling particularly superstitious. There seem to be signs all around us of impending doom. While most days I try to buoy myself up with optimism and high hopes, there, is a, there are those intermittent spates of days that pop up and challenge all facets of idealism. When is the war going to stop? When will the troops come home? When will all of the Katrina victims be housed? When will we find a cure for AIDS or Alzheimer's or multiple sclerosis? It seems narcissistic, even mad, to consider what an enthusiastic billboard or encouraging fortune cookie message can instill a sense of joyful anticipation. And it seems glumly unrealistic as well. But I believe that the need to believe in superstitions is akin to the hope or wish to believe in magic. Who doesn't want to live in a magical universe where only good things happen to good people and bad things don't exist at all? According to the New York Times, the brain seems to have networks that are specialized to produce an explicit, magical explanation in some circumstances such thinking is only one domain where a relevant interpretation that connects all the dots, so to speak, is preferred to a rational one. Furthermore, it seems that children exhibit a form of magical thinking by about 18 months, when they begin to create imaginary worlds while playing. By age three, most know the difference between fantasy and reality, though they usually still believe in Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. By age eight, they have mostly pruned away these beliefs and the line between magic and reality is about as clear to them as it is for adults. Last night, as I was walking home from work, I felt a desperate need for a sign. I peered into shop windows, searched for newly hung street posters, and listened to couples' fleeting conversation as I passed them by. But the messages were indecipherable. My gloom grew. All I could see were the bulging stacks of garbage bags, the needy eyes of passers-by, the sad sack reflection of a middle-aged woman in the window of a dry cleaner. When does life get easy? When does life become fair? I have no answers this Friday afternoon other than to share one last image on yesterday's journey home. One unmistakable sign of encouragement. Doubt that of the sprouting buds. The fledgling shoots and unfurling bulbs have arrived. As I turned the corner to my apartment, I remembered, spring is upon us. Whatever lack of magic I could muster in my mind, signs of life remain, unfettered in their self-sufficiency, unruly in their cheer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today, I am so honored to announce, is Luba Lukova. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a bit more about her. Luba Lukova is a renowned artist and designer whose distinctive art utilizes metaphors, juxtaposition of symbols, and economy of line and text to succinctly capture humanity's elemental themes. Visually engaging and powerful, Lukova's work is exhibited around the world. Her solo exhibitions have been held all over, and this year examples of her work will be on display in Italy and Slovenia. Bulgarian-born, Luba has won many awards, and she is widely regarded for her work in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Time Magazine, among many, many others. Luba's work is included in the permanent collections of the Museum of Modern Art in New York and the Library of Congress, uh, also among many, many others. 
In 2007, Clay and Gold Editions will publish the first compre comprehensive work about her art. Welcome, Luba. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's my honor. Um, well, one question that I, I often ask my guests, and um, I, I especially love to ask the guests on my show that are both artists and designers, um, and we'll talk a little bit about those okay. monikers later, is um, what was your first creative memory? When was, what is your memory of the first time you were creative? Mm, since very early childhood, because my grandmother was an artist, so I was always around her. And um, I, I almost don't remember anything about myself but that I wanted to do that. And um, it was not even a profession or something. It was just what I meant to do, you know. That's, that's how I looked at it. And um, later on in life, when you realize that uh, it's not so easy to devote your entire existence to that, um, there are moments where you really ask yourself, is that really possible? Can I sustain this? But when you go back to your childhood when, and you remember about that first uh, spark, that, um, that magnetism of art, then that gives you energy to continue and to sustain. But, but, but that's it. I, I have no other memory but that I wanted to be that. You said your grandmother mm -hmm. was an artist. Yeah. What kind mm -hmm. of work did she do? No, she was a fine artist, uh, painter. Mm, she was trained in Germany. She was born in 1901. Yeah. And um, she was a fine artist, basically. She was not uh, associated with graphic design, even though she did some um, crafts and worked with metal and textile and other materials, but basically she was a fine artist. Now, did you know from the time you were very little that you wanted to be an artist when you grew up? Yes, so yes, yeah. absolutely. And, absolutely. Uh, and they were all very supportive of that? Well, she was, uh, because that's this, that was the easiest uh, way to calm down my energy, to make me draw or paint. But um, I was also very good at school, at mathematics and, you know, in any other discipline at school. So my parents hoped that I will not take... Uh, the path of, of an artist um, and um, when I finished uh, high school I was accepted to study first um, engineering which involved a lot of high mathematics but after one year I quit and um, again I applied for the National Academy of Fine Arts and actually took me three years of application uh, going through the exams until finally I was accepted so that's how I quit with mathematics and science and all that and devoted myself completely to that but um, yeah, I've had uh, difficulties through, through that because, like I said, my parents uh, felt that I should go another way. Um, wow, so, so three years to get yes. into the university. Now, I know that the Academy of Fine Art in it's Bulgaria difficult. is a very difficult yes. university, but three years? Yes. What did they put you through? Well, um, the exams were very difficult. Uh, first, you have to go like one, it was like one day of drawing, uh, like, like 12 hours, I believe, exam, uh, making a portrait with uh, charcoal or pencil. If you pass that, you go to the next one, which was painting, and if you pass the painting, um, you go for a third exam, which was already, um, in my case, like poster designer. If you apply for illustration, book illustration, you do book illustrations. If you apply for sculpture, you do a sculpture. You know, the third exam war, was more specialized. So I believe on the first year, they cut me on the drawing, so I was not able to pass the drawing exam. Uh -huh. On the third year, I passed the three exams, but when they combine all of the 
grades, you know, I did not have enough to, to be accepted. And on the third year, I was accepted as number one, so. <laughs> and did you ever in those three years um, rethink your desire no. to? So you no, know. even though I had a lot of pressure, again, from, from my family, who was thinking that I mm, basically did a major mistake by not continuing to study engineering. Mm. I can't even imagine you yeah. as an engineer, Luba. No, but I was, I was good at mathematics, and I loved that, and it was really easy for me. I did not... Uh, I have to struggle with that. I, when I was at school, I won some mathematics competitions and stuff like that. I was really good at mathematics. So, I don't know. It was just something that I did uh, without um, too much effort. Mm -hmm. But um, my passion took more effort, you know. What I wanted uh, always um, took more effort. So, that's how it... Uh, also... Uh, to give an idea how difficult it was to become a student, when I was accepted, only four people from the entire country were accepted to do masters in graphic design. So it was a tough, tough, tough competition. Wow. So um, where were most of the students coming from? What part? From of all the, over the country. All over the country. From all over, over the, the world? Or? No, no. From all over the country. There were some foreign students, but they did not go through the exams that we were put through. They were just like some exchange students, and they were from different parts of the world, like um, from Vietnam or, you know, probably countries from the socialist or communist uh, circle. I mean, but they were very, very few people. Now, with your pension for mathematics and science, do you feel that, well, first of all, it's very unusual to have both yeah. a real talent for math and science as well as art and design. Yeah, well, it's not so unusual. Well, left brain, right brain often is... Yeah, but I work with both hands, so... Oh, so you, are you yeah. uh, ambidextrous? Yeah. yeah. Oh, you are. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, do you find that that mathematical bent is something that you can see in your work or is involved in your work and yes. or involved in the way yes. you approach your work? In what way? In the conceptual way, in the, in the coming up with ideas and concepts. Absolutely, I find it similar. Yeah. Well, Luba, we have to take our first break, but I want to come back okay. to, and talk to you about your ability to write with both hands. I have a couple of interesting questions, I think, in that regard. But in the meantime, I want to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is designer, illustrator, and artist, Luba Lukova. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Four oh ones, stock, mortgage, retirement, wealth. We cover it all. Voice America Business. Welcome to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe, where creative professionals speak out about their work and what inspires them. The Savannah College of Art and Design in Atlanta is known for producing highly skilled graphic design students. Henry Kim's a professor in the graphic design department. Henry, how does SCAD differ from other schools? I believe our student has a higher quality than other students because we also try to help students to maximize their creative ability as much as possible. Not just using tool, not just using the you know, the medium they have learned through the education, we also help our students the way they can put their own aura into their work. We don't call ourselves graphic designer because we know how to use a tool. We call ourselves graphic designer because we know how to communicate with other people. So we are the transmitter, medium between our sender and receiver. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. Coming up in the next break, Henry Kim talks about teaching students design tools. 
This is Wynton Marcellus for AIGA New York. Nicholas Troxler has spent a lifetime turning the passion and soul of jazz into some of the most compelling poster design ever. AIGA New York proudly presents Look, Listen, Nicholas Troxler in New York City, a benefit for the city of New Orleans, followed by a concert by Cecil Taylor, the new AHA 3, and John Zorn's Acoustic Masada. We know y'all are going to enjoy it. And please go to AIGANewYork.org to register and get all the details. Mom, my tooth fell out. The coach says I can play shortstop. I get to be a deciduous tree. You live for the firsts in your child's life. But how do you cope with the firsts that come after your child is diagnosed with cancer? CureSearch.org connects you to the doctors and scientists whose collaborative research has turned childhood cancer from a nearly incurable disease to one with an overall cure rate of 78%. CureSearch.org. You're not as alone as you feel. Brought to you by CureSearch and the Ad Council. It has been said that to live is to choose, but to choose well, you must know who you are and what you stand for, where you want to go, and why you want to get there. On Reap What You Sow, with host, performance management specialist, and executive coach, Alana Daly, achievement and success through expanding yourself and your life is available at the click of a mouse. Reap through redefining your goals. Educate your mind, your body, your conscious, and unconscious. Apply what you learn and plan, and it shall be. Success over and over again, and wealth result when you reap regularly reap what you sow with alana daily broadcast each thursday at 11 a.m pacific 2 p.m eastern on the voice america business channel reap what you sow learn the rules of the game then play better than anyone else keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business this is voice america business We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.20 Eastern Time, and you're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is designer, illustrator, and artist Luba Lukova. If you'd like to join our conversation, our phone lines are now open. You can call 1-866-472-5790. We do have a caller on the line, but before we get to our caller, I wanted to share with our listening audience uh, something that Luba and I discovered that we have in common over the break, and that is that we can both write mirror backwards. And I've only met one or two other people in my whole life that can actually write mirror backwards. But actually, Luba can do something that I've never, ever seen before. She can write mirror backwards and upside down, which is an extraordinary, extraordinary feat. Luba's cracking up here. But um, for anybody that uh, has a chance to meet Luba in the future, you must, must, must ask her to give you her autograph upside down and backwards. It's an extraordinary piece of art. Um, well, welcome back, listeners. Um, we have a caller on the line, Gregory. Thank you for calling Design Matters. Hey, Debbie. Hey, Luba. Hello. Hello. Um, my question really has to do with, um, I guess, graphic advertising. I mean, of course, you think about um, the, the great poster scandals of Toulouse-Lautrec, but um, <laughs> Gregory, you say that as if it's you know the Daily News headline of the day. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I guess. Up until probably the late 40s, on through the 50s, definitely by the 60s, most advertising um, was 
was illustration, it wasn't photography. And I, I know that I saw once an ad uh, from an old magazine for Lord & Taylor, and it was a Christmas ad, and it was for Arpege. And Arpege, you know, came in that beautiful round black bottle. And it just showed a woman's hand with a glove on it, and um, her glove was trimmed in fur, and she was pouring the Arpege into a champagne glass. Oh, I remember that. And it's this Not because I'm that image. old. I remember that from the archives. I'm sorry, Gregory. No, and I'm just wondering, you know, that we don't really see that sort of thing. And, of course, that was just a normal Christmas ad for just one product. You know, it was, it was uh, plentiful, that kind of advertising. Would, would, do you have any theory as to why it just sort of disappeared, which it did? And, B, would you ever like to do it yourself? For myself, if I have an idea why I disappeared, well, hmm. I think because photography allows um, more realistic representation of things, you know, and um, I guess when advertising uh, employed photography, the people who produced uh, ads felt that this was more direct contact and more convincing that the consumer can identify with uh, with their product closer if it's a photograph. I don't know if that's the reason or not. But um, I think also photography is much easier and faster to produce compared to drawing. I don't mm. know. I have no idea why. But I, I think it's because we they want to identify more with uh, the photography than, than with the drawn or painted image somehow. Um, Do you prefer the photography? Uh, no, no. Because I... I think that drawing or painting an image um, allows you more emotional contact with the viewer and allows you more personal expression as an artist. So I've tried using photography um, and I think it's good, but for my own work, more on a level of expressing more of a kind of... Um, concept that doesn't involve so much emotion but more of a mental concept somehow. I don't know if I can express myself well. Uh, I feel the best of my work comes when it's fully done by me. The right. idea, the um, execution, everything is really mine. When there is photography, I feel like it doesn't belong too much to me. And that's well, how I, I, I guess, feel. I guess that's, that's what I mean because on some level, the photography and, and just the reality of photography takes, sometimes can take away, ironically enough, even if the composition is fantasy, the photography is real, whereas yes, you know, yes, the illustration is, is, can be all fantasy. Mm -hmm. and represents okay. fantasy, and somehow there's a little magic taken out of there. Yes, yes, and also I don't want to put down the work of a photographer, of a great photographer, but still, if we're talking about pure image making, it's easier to make a photograph of a human face than to make a painted or a drawn portrait of that face. Just the technology makes the visualization much uh, easier, and... Um, Probably that's why it's been used so much, and especially now with the digital cameras, everybody can um, call himself a photographer, while not everybody can call himself a portrait artist, artist or illustrator, you know. Right. I, I mean, I think it's more difficult to draw than to take photographs, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I've seen your work, and it's very beautiful, and I'd, mm, love, to see, I'd love to see you do advertising and, and make everything <laughs> beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Lula. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, thank Jenny. you for calling, Gregory. Bye. Have a great weekend. Yeah.
Luba, I have a couple more questions about your history before um, we talk a little bit more about how you approach your work. But from what I've read about your past, I understand that it wasn't up to you where you would practice your craft mm. after graduating mm. from university. And, and you were assigned as a poster artist for a small theater in a very small town by the government. Yes, well, yes. Um, what, so, first of all, why was the government assigning you mm. to your job? Oh, yeah, okay. and, and what would have happened if you didn't like it or want it? And Mm, well, back in these years, uh, during the communism, which ended in 1989, they had this law that you can only live and practice or mm, work in the capital city only if you were physically born there. So since I was not born in the capital city, I was not allowed to stay there. This, this was almost like in the medieval times. Mm -hmm. You can live only where you were born, you know. And how many years ago was this? Mm, I finished school in 86, in so January. really yes, not that long ago. No, but it was three years before the collapse of the communism, but the rules were like iron rules. You cannot break them. So um, after I finished school, I was immediately notified that I must leave, you know, immediately. And if you don't obey, you can suffer the consequences. They can just uh, arrest you or, you know, and they really did that. It was not like a joke. And you don't have anywhere to hide because they know everything about you. So I was told that I have to leave right away. And uh, even though my grandparents, for example, were living in the capital city, but I was not even allowed to live with them if I wanted them, just because I was not born there. So that's what it is. So they assigned you to a small theater company. Yeah, yeah. And um, what, how did you feel upon that designation? Were you happy? I mean, that seemed like it would be a good, looking back on it now, it seems like the perfect place for you perfect to Perfect place, or, you know, well, crafted well, your, your um, style. I yeah, I felt, it, uh, I felt at that time a little bit, um, not a little bit, I felt very, very disappointed because everything in this basically small country was concentrated in the capital. And um, you've spent six uh, years with uh, the academy and you, all of your friends are there, so all of a sudden you have to leave and there is no excuse and there is no exception at all for me. And um, in this um, little town, I knew um, two people who were, f uh, one of them was an art uh, historian from the academy, but she was older than me, and her husband was a musician in this small town. So I knew that uh, these two people, basically, but then they also left the country, so I basically didn't know anybody. And I went to the theater, and um, they didn't have a professional graphic designer, and I remember that when they introduced me to the artistic director, he was a little bit puzzled by, by me, like a strange bird graphic designer in that little town. <laughs> uh, so he said that the first job he wants me to do is to make um, uh, labels that the theater is a non-smoking area. So, Ooh, <laughs> big so this is what I did. That was and pretty progressive at the time, in the late 80s. Yes, right, right, when you think about it. But I don't know, they, they asked me to do that. And then um, the first uh, production was due in the fall, and I remember I was hurt in the summer when the theater is uh, in vacation, and the very, very first production was this um, uh, one about Lorca, if you've seen one guitar with yes. uh, daggers. This is the very first poster I did right after school, and it's now in the Mama's permanent collection, but, you know, it, it was... extraordinary. And so this was the first one I did, and then... When they printed it, everybody liked it, and they saw that it, it really made a difference. And 
from this poster on, I had to do the entire production of the theater, and it turned out that there was a small chamber opera and some puppet theater and all other things, and everybody wanted me to, to do the poster. So for just a couple of months, I was known in this town like a designer, and I was really busy in producing work um, from, for almost everybody in the town. Now, your work is very difficult, it's very provocative, it's often very, very political. Um, what was the reaction to your style of work back in the late 80s in a mm. communist time? Yes, well, um, probably one of the reasons that there was no exception for me that, that, that I had to leave in just a couple of days after I finished school was because even from a student I tried to do work which was critical uh, towards the regime, but in a very metaphorical way, you know. And um, I, of course, brought that with me in the theater. And when I went uh, to this small town, it turned out that uh, there were many uh, theater directors or actors who shared the same uh, feelings like me, and that's why they were <laughs> sent there. So from them, and by working with them, all these thoughts kind of got their shape and my conviction that art should uh, speak uh, the truth, you know, even though truth is something so relative, but I truly believe that this is what I should do as an artist. And I was never, I never thought about myself as a graphic designer in that sense, the way design is understood here. You know, it was part of the bigger picture. And I was one uh, link of that whole art um, atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And I was doing these uh, posters that were the essence of the work of the other people. So, sure, I... I I brought that sensitivity with me, and it's in everything I did. But, but I also think that um, art and culture always is political in its best, you know, and you don't have to be specifically activist to have political element in your work. Or I also don't like when the work is just political, when there is not that magic and mm -hmm. mystery of art. So both of these extremes to me are too simplistic. I'd like to do that uh, amalgam where personal and political and uh, social and um, intimate is all intertwined somehow. So um, this all kind of evolved for these three years where I were there and I think um, that's something that nobody teaches you at school. You have to be immersed into the real practice and with really people who think the same way and who can open you up to new um, ideas, which happened for me in that little town. Now, were you ever worried that your work was getting too political to uh, be accepted by... Uh, that I've never been afraid, you know, never, even though I knew that um, so many people were sent to prison, but, but when you are 20-something, you really don't care about these things, <laughs> and even though my, my parents were um, saying, oh, you better be careful, you don't, you don't do that, you're not supposed to say that, but you don't listen, you just uh, feel that... Um, there is something wrong, and with all of your energy and passion, you should fix it, you should change it. And um, again, this was in um, 86, 87, 89, you know, at that time already Gorbachev was in power in uh, the Soviet Union, and it was like a wind blowing throughout the Eastern Bloc that change will happen. So for, for people like me, for artists, for, um, younger, um, for the younger generation, this was so encouraging and so uh, wild, you know, like you felt like, oh, we will change that, it's going to be 
finished soon. So there was no fear at all. I've never, I've never feared anything. You know, Now I understand that when you first came to the U.S., you came in order to uh, see your work at an, at an international poster yes. display in Colorado, and you thought you might stay a few weeks. Yeah. Um, you ended up staying over a decade. Um, uh, first of all, an international poster exhibit so early in your career. Um, to be yes. able to come to the United States and then view it and then decide that you didn't want to leave. So mm. tell us about how your work got yeah. to the poster display and then yes. what mm -hmm. happened uh, when you decided not right. to leave. So it is true that I was really very young when I got on my shoulders the responsibility for an entire theater house. And this was not your off-off-off-Broadway <laughs> theater house. This was a huge uh, artistic institution supported uh, financially by the government, full productions like about 12 plays in repertory with uh, advertising, posters, programs, tickets. I designed everything in, well, that you can imagine in this uh, institution. So producing so much work was really good for me. And at that time, um, there was this... Um, uh, Union of the Bulgarian Artists, which was basically the institution that would collect uh, artistic work and uh, having access to the international um, venues like biennials, exhibitions around the world, they will selectively send the selected pieces from the artist, uh, from the artist without um, your own address appearing on your work. It was all going out as a shipment from this union of the artists. And uh, they were having these uh, announcements that we collect work, and I, like everybody else, submitted my work without knowing what's going to happen. But my work was sent around to the biennials in uh, Poland, in the Czech Republic, in Finland, never with my own address. I was never allowed to go and see my work. Even to Poland, I was not allowed even to go and pick up the catalog. They were put on a business trip, some uh, from the apparatus, from the party. He would go there and he will bring the catalog to uh, Sofia and they will uh, call me and say, your catalog is here, you can come and pick up your catalog. So that's how much I knew, and I, being like 25 years old, 26 years old. But I was encouraged that my work is being accepted uh, around the world, but I never received a letter or nothing. No, I was just some little um, element uh, somewhere <laughs> in the corner of the country. So the communism collapsed, and all of a sudden I get um, uh, from the union, they say that now you can send your work on your own. <laughs> and that's how I sent my work to, um, I forget, to Poland or to the Czech Republic, and I received an invitation from Colorado on my own name, on my own address. So, of course, I took advantage of that, and I immediately wanted to go and see. And this is the first time I ever left uh, Bulgaria to... Um, to see my work in another place. So, so and how old, you at, how old were you at this point? How old? How I old was you? already 28. So. Ooh, 28. <laughs> <laughs> and so you came to the United States at that point with the intention of just staying for a couple of weeks, yes. and then you stayed mm. really forever. You've been here since, pretty yes. much. Yes, yes, that's true. That's and true. Um, so what happened? What, what, well, yeah. I went to Colorado. Uh, I never introduced myself to the organizers. I just saw my work and uh, stayed there for two days. And then I went back to New York because I had a plane ticket on the next week. And, <laughs> I mean, it's a funny story, but I stayed somewhere. I'm not going to go into details where I stayed. But um, um, 
the people with whom I stayed said, well, you are here, why don't you try and stay? And uh, I was not sure how I could do that, um, but they told me that there are so many listings for jobs. Look at the, this newspaper, that's the New York Times, this is where people look for jobs. And I saw the illustrations and I felt, well, this is so easy, Who can, I mean, I can do these little things here. So. <laughs> 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 so I just encouraged that person where I was to call the paper and uh, I um, had like 20 slides and um, I also saw an issue of Grafis poster here where my work was published but I didn't know about that. So I bought, the same person with whom I, stay, I stayed bought the book for me because I didn't have no money at all. So I dropped uh, these slides in the book and... Um, when I went to pick it up, I remember it was for the New York Times magazine, so they told me to go upstairs because they want to meet with me. And I met um, this woman who is in the magazine. Janet Crowley? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, she said that um, the book review would be a good place for me, so I dropped it again at the book review and I got my job at the book review, and that's how I stayed. Wow, yeah. that's an incredible story. Yeah. Now, we have a caller on the line for you. We have Prescott. Prescott, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hey, Debbie. Hey, Lula. How are you? Good, thank you. Um, coincidentally, I'm actually a, an engineering graduate with a, a master's in design. Wow. And, wow. Uh, yeah, there, thank there's you for more calling. than one of us, apparently. And um, I found lately that a lot of times you kind of have to prove that you're a designer. People think <laughs> because you didn't. You didn't go to art school for you know classic four years that you're that you're not a real designer. So I was just wondering if you had any experiences like that and how you overcame uh, the prejudices. Yes, um, I had this type of experience because I was not uh, allowed by my parents to go to. Um, there was this high school for art, which was like the first level before you go to the academy. And um, usually the children who went to the high school, they had really incredible drawing skills and were really in the cr much more into drawing and painting with that uh, m mindset that they are already artists. They go to the academy just to polish a little bit things. Well, for me, I knew um, how to draw and to paint basically from... Uh, my grandmother and uh, from some classes that I was uh, taking, but I had to go to, through the mathematics and through the engineering. At the end, when I was finally accepted um, in the academy, I had that feel always that, well, they're a little faster than me, they, they, they know how to do um, more things than me, that I unfortunately had to study mathematics at the time. But this was soon um, over. Because I think... Um, it was actually good that I didn't have to go entirely and spend all of my um, childhood being in, uh, trained as an artist. It was good that I tried different things and uh, I also thought that I was more mature, you know, in terms of thinking and having um, perspective on a different um, level somehow. So, no, you don't have to feel that way at all. You don't have to. Uh, you should take it as a gift. And also, I, I strongly believe that uh, mathematics and art are connected. Mm -hmm. Mathematics and music? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Mathematics and poetry. Yes. So, no, no, this is just... Uh, if you ask me now if I know how to solve these uh, mathematical um, equations and differential things, you know, the higher mathematics, I don't have nothing in my brain. It's all erased from my brain. But 
that whole attitude for thinking, for analyzing, for making connections, for making associations, for looking for simple solution. Because in mathematics, you can go to the right answer, but the um, solution is good when it's uh, done in the fastest way, in the shortest way, which is true for design. The simple solution is the most effective solution. So it's absolutely a gift if you have that knowledge. So you don't have to feel below the other people. No, no, absolutely. No, I, I agree. I'm, I'm a calculus geek from way back, and I try to use that in my designs. So uh, yes. thank you very much. Yes, no, absolutely. That's a gift. So thank you. Thank you for calling, Prescott. Take care. Um, but, you know, it's interesting that you talk about you know, the role of Oh, we have another caller as well. Okay. Well, Isabel, we will um, take after the break, if that's okay. Ryan, our producer, is letting us know we have another caller. Um, a quote here that I that I found in, in talking about the role of designer in society, and it's a quote from an exhibition of your work in Japan. Um, and this is, this is the quote. Luba takes exception to the way in which graphic design is relegated to a low status by art critics and its reputation as a late, lightweight calling and has fought tirelessly for the profession to be given its due. And this is uh, your quote. Mm -hmm. No matter the scale of the work I do, it's first and always the idea and the emotion and the meaning I put into it. And it matters little if the piece is called fine art or graphic design. If you put enough seriousness into what you do, people always respond to it. So I don't mind so much how the art critics label my work. Um, can you tell us if, if you're feeling the same way now, if you're yes. feeling any more strongly about it? Um, how are people labeling your work these days? Uh, I absolutely go um, behind these words. I have not changed my opinion on that. Um, I was just in Kansas City and I had to do a um, lecture in front of fine artists. And uh, when I started, I had that feeling that I had to apologize that people <laughs> call me graphic designer. Because for, for the fine artists, we as designers are um, some kind of, uh, um, you know, creatures that have sold out a little bit, you know. Um, and uh, I didn't know anything how the audience would react, but at the end, uh, people came to me and said, no, you don't have to think uh, if you are a designer or an artist, what you do speaks, uh, so don't even apologize for that, just do what you do. And I, I still believe uh, so, I mean, I really don't know for myself what is design, what is art. Do I... Uh, make my clients happy when I do good work? Yes. Am I happy too? Yes. So everybody is happy at the end if the work w uh, works well, if I'm making somebody think or if I'm making somebody cry or laugh. That, that's, that's what we all want. I, I don't know how to say if, if design is a light, wide occupation. I, I, I probably said this because I've heard it from other people that they think that our job is just to put together elements and to satisfy somebody else's idea or to fulfill intentions of a client or of a seller of a product or something. It's true to, a, to an extent. But it's the artist who really makes it, or the designer who really makes it go to a higher level. It depends what you put into it. So that's why I said seriousness. Mm -hmm. But it's not probably seriousness. It's about feelings that you put in, your beliefs that you put in. So, so that, yeah, I feel... Well, I, I found a, another, another quote of yours, and I think this is one of the best definitions <laughs> uh, of art that I've, I've uh, read. You write... 
Art is not a definition. It is an, an experience. experience. Exactly. <laughs> if that's it moves it. you to me, it doesn't matter how you how they call it. If I want to move people and make them think, that means I am doing art. Art with a capital A. <laughs> uh, we have to take a break. Uh, I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is designer, illustrator, artist, Luba Lukova. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Strengthening your financial goals. The leader in business talk radio. Voice America Business. Welcome back to Voices of Design. We're speaking with Professor Henry Kim from the Savannah College of Art and Design. Henry, give us an example of an assignment you give your students. You have to do design your own seven days diary. Then they have to find out which software will help them to do that. So they have, if they want to put their snapshot into their diary, then they have to learn the Photoshop. And then if they want to put their logo, if they have a logo in the, on the back of their diary, then they have to use Illustrator. And then if they want to put the whole thing into the one package, then they have to use InDesign. I don't really care how they create it. You are a mature graphic designer now, so we, are, we just want to talk about why you did it. So what's the reason behind it? And then as long as you know how to visualize it, that's, that's fine. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. For more information, visit adobe.com. This is Wynton Marcellus for AIGA New York. Nicholas Troxler has spent a lifetime turning the passion and soul of jazz into some of the most compelling poster design ever. AIGA New York proudly presents Look, Listen, Nicholas Troxler in New York City, a benefit for the city of New Orleans, followed by a concert by Cecil Taylor, the new AHA 3, and John Zorn's Acoustic Masada. We know y'all are going to enjoy it. And please go to AIGANewYork.org to register and get all the details. Hi, I'm Ron Jaslowski of Del Monte Foods Corporation, and I'm here to invite you to attend the Fuse Brand Identity and Package Design Conference this April in New York City. You might have heard of the Bad Boys of Design segment on Design Matters podcast, but now you can see it in person. The Fuse event is proud to announce their own version of the show, the Bad Boys of Brand Design, as the official kickoff to the 2007 event. Join me along with others from Colgate-Palmolive, Starbucks, Johnson & Johnson, and Georgia Pacific as we discuss how design can be aligned, leveraged, managed, and integrated to best position your brand in the marketplace. Plus, hear from the design leaders from OXO, Procter & Gamble, Martha Stewart Living, Omnimedia, and more who will give you actionable ideas for fueling change and driving growth in your company. For more information, call 888-670-8200, visit www.iirusa.com, or you can email direct at register at iirusa.com. If you mention that you heard about the event from Design Matters, you'll receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. I hope to see you April 16th to the 18th at Pier 60 at Chelsea Piers in New York City. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.50 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on 
Voice America Business. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is designer, illustrator, and artist, Luba Lukova. This is uh, your last opportunity to call us if you'd like to speak with Luba. Our phone lines are open, 1-866-472-5790. And Luba, we do have another caller. We have Isabel on the line. Isabel, thank you for calling Design Matters. Oh, it looks like she's hung up. Well, I guess we asked her to wait for a really yeah, long time. Um, in any case, I wanted to get back to what we were talking about before in terms of uh, the role of designer and artist. And I was wondering if, if you feel that um, designers and artists, or and or artists really, have any obligation to create design or work to inspire social change. Do you feel that that should be something that is part of the role that we carry? Yes, uh, but uh, not literally, you know, mm, because art changes you even if it doesn't have the social message on such an obvious level. The music of Mozart changes you too but mm. without having the, that, you know. Um, it has to come in an organic way. If it's forced on you, it always shows and uh, I never liked being called activist because I associated with this type of activism and propaganda back in the communist times where mm -hmm. this was put in front of every other aspect of art, you know, just the message. So I don't like that. I feel that uh, we have obligation as long as we feel so, but it doesn't have to be just like a rule on us, you know. Mm -hmm. And also we need to know that like it or not, we always change people's uh, mind in one way or another. Even bad advertising changes uh, people's minds. So. Mm, this is true. Very, yeah. very true. Um, we were talking about uh, upcoming work that you are doing. Yes. I understand that you have a book coming out yes. uh, later this year. Yes. Um, when we were talking about the book earlier before, you said something that really piqued my interest. Uh, you were talking about how in your book you will be showcasing how you've come up with some of your ideas yes. and what you considered the invisible stuff. Yes. And I love that term, just the idea that that is um, the invisible magic, so to speak, mm -hmm. of the way in which we approach our work or the way in which we approach ideas. What, what kind of work will you be showing in your book? Well, um, very often people think that when they see something simple, the process behind it is as fast as, uh, you know, as it can be. But usually to simplify and to come up with um, concise, succinct form requires a lot of preliminary work. And uh, I have a lot of that collected. Sometimes it's not even just uh, sketching or drawing, but thinking about things uh, or uh, watching at a movie or reading in a book or listening to the music that can trigger your imagination to work and um, in this uh, book there is going to be a whole section exactly on that uh, process of invisible uh, labor or invisible um, fermentation that goes into your brain before the idea kind of takes its shape and um, this is really not being published uh, the sketches, the hundreds of sketches that I have preserved, um, not all of them I preserved though because some of them are just too uh, loose and shapeless somehow. But yes, I would like to, to show that because I've been asked by people and by students, they very often ask me how do you come uh, up with ideas and even though there is no formula, but there is a way to show that and to probably encourage people to 
to think about it and help them in their work. So, yeah. That's, that's wonderful. I look forward to seeing, I mean, the whole concept of being able to make the invisible visible seems yeah. really magical to me. Now, I understand you also have a show coming up in Italy. You're off to Italy next week. Yes, on Monday. So, yeah. and it's at the Museum of Natural History in Italy. And um, can you tell us a little bit more about, about the show? Well, this is uh, an exhibition uh, organized by the Museum of Natural History called The Naked Ape. And it's a huge show that they put on the evolution of man. And I was approached by the curators who wanted my work to accompany the historical artifacts of this gigantic show, uh, together, of course, with the work of other prominent um, artists. Um, and and t tell us who those other prominent artists are who you're going to be um, featured with. Um, Andy Warhol and um, Jackson Pollock, for Wonderful. example, and some other ones, too, more contemporary. But um, they picked uh, five of my pieces, and uh, um, the four of them, the crime series, and they have this poster called Peace, like the Dove of Peace Made Out of uh, War Symbols. They will be in a section uh, about the negative side of uh, humanity. And um, mm, this whole chapter of the museum asks a question about human violence and also the economic routines that the humans have developed that uh, have turned against the humans in nature. Um, so my work will be in that um, area. And then also on the brighter side, uh, they took that print love that I have, which uh, has each letter made out of human uh, shapes and it represents different kinds of uh, kinds of love, and this will be blown up huge as an opener for a section on uh, human sexuality and animal sexuality as well. Mm -hmm. um, so this is interesting. So basically six pieces will be used there, and I'm looking forward to see how they were able to organize such an enormous, vast uh, content um, into an exhibit. And truly, as, uh, mm, as an artist, as a thinking person, I'm interested in, in all that, in the human nature, in the human condition in general, because I think that what make, that's what makes uh, uh, work really powerful, the human condition. Well, I think, Luba, your mm. work is, it, it just showcases so much of the sort of most basic um, emotions and, and basic as well as complicated emotions in, in, our, in our culture, in our history. Do you feel that violence is part of our DNA? Do you think that it's something we can't avoid? It's probably, it's part, yes, I, I do believe it's part, um, but um, I've thought always that as we as humans being more advanced than the animals, we should be able to control that, but surprisingly we, we are even more violent uh, towards other humans than the animals are towards other animals, and this is probably one of the uh, areas of investigations for, for these scientists in Italy. Why violence exists? Violence is truly a mystery because we are so much more advanced, but we kill each other in a more uh, horrible way that, than any animal right. can do to another animal. Um, I'm really looking forward to see what they think, but it is a part, yes, it is a part, but in the most evolved uh, humans, this is suppressed somehow. Yeah. So. Well, as long as we have people that, like you that provide this type of work and this type of honesty to us, maybe we'll be able to try and at least have that reflection turned back on ourselves to make a better world for our future.
Luba, thank you so much for being on the show today. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of the broadcast. We could talk for hours. Um, I'd like to uh, thank you so much for being here. I'd like to give a very special thanks to our sponsor, Adobe. Big thanks as well to Brian, Ruben, and Ryan at Voice American Business, Lisa Grant, and Jen Simon and Sterling. Joining me next week is the creative director of MTV, Jeffrey Keaton. Thank you for listening, and please remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.